Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me this evening. This is the Halloween weekend, the season of scary stories in front of the fire, and I've been asked to do a couple of stories from one of the American masters of the genre. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. The words are from The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, the man you may have read like me when you were quite young, and who gave you an idea of how exciting literature could be. I dedicate tonight's program to my sister, Catherine King, who first introduced me to Edgar Allan Poe when I was in middle school and she was in high school and had just made the acquaintance of Poe's The Telltale Heart, heart-pounding excitement indeed. We may have gone on to other things, but Poe got us started, and many cherished the thrills he gave us. His stories can still pack a punch or two. Tonight's stories are not for the faint of heart. Listener discretion is advised. The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar Of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of Monsieur Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts, as far as I comprehend them myself. They are succinctly these. My attention for the last three years had been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and about nine months ago it occurred to me, quite suddenly, that in the series of experiments made hitherto there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis, in the jaws of death. It remained to be seen, first, whether in such condition there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence, secondly, whether, if any existed, it was impaired or increased by the condition, third, to what extent, or for how long a period, the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend Monsieur Ernest Valdemar, the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica, and author, under the nom de plume of Isaac Marx, of the Polish versions of Wallenstein and Gargantua. Monsieur Valdemar, who has resided principally at Harlem, New York, since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers, in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair, the latter, in consequence, being very generally mistaken for a wig. On two or three occasions I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control. I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed tisis. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution, as of a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, 
It was, of course, very natural that I should think of M. Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject, and to my surprise his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character which would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination in death, and it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about twenty-four hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received from M. Valdemar himself the subjoined note. My dear P., you may as well come now. D. and F. are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in fifteen minutes more I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days, and was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a lusterless hue, the eyes were utterly lusterless, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them a minute account of the patient's condition. The left lung had been for eighteen months in a semi-osseous or cartilaginous state, and was, of course, entirely useless for all purposes of vitality. The right, in its upper portion, was also partially, if not thoroughly, ossified, while the lower region was merely a mass of purulent tubercles, running one into another. It was the opinion of both physicians that M. Valdemar would die about midnight on the morrow, Sunday. It was then seven o'clock on Saturday evening. When they had gone, I spoke freely with M. Valdemar on the subject of his approaching dissolution, as well as, more particularly, of the experiment proposed. He still professed himself quite willing, and even anxious to have it made, and urged me to commence it at once. A male and a female nurse were in attendance, but I did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people, in case of sudden accident, might prove. I therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night, when the arrival of a medical student with whom I had some acquaintance, Mr. Theodore L., relieved me from farther embarrassment. It had been my design originally to wait for the physicians, but I was induced to proceed, first, by the urgent entreaties of M. Valdemar, and second, by my conviction that I had not a moment to lose, as he was evidently sinking fast. It wanted about five minutes of eight when, taking the patient's hand, I begged him to state, as distinctly as he could, to Mr. L., whether he, Mr. Valdemar, was entirely willing that I should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, yet quite audibly, Yes, I wish to be mesmerized. I fear you have deferred it too long. While he spoke thus, I commenced the passes which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. He was evidently influenced 
with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead. But although I exerted all my powers, no further perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after ten o'clock, when doctors D and F called, according to appointment. I explained to them in a few words what I designed, and, as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony, I proceeded without hesitation, exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones, and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time his pulse was imperceptible, and his breathing was stertorous, and at intervals of half a minute. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before eleven I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination which is never seen except in cases of sleep-waking, and which it is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes I made the lids quiver as in incipient sleep, and with a few more I closed them altogether. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously and with the fullest exertion of the will until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer after placing them in a seemingly easy position. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentleman present to examine Monsieur Valdemar's condition. They admitted him to be in an unusually perfect state of mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both the physicians was greatly excited, Dr. D. resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F. took leave with a promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L. and the nurses remained. The pulse was imperceptible. The breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable, unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached M. Valdemar, I made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own as I passed the latter gently to and fro above his person. In such experiments with this patient I had never perfectly succeeded before, and assuredly I had little thought of succeeding now. But to my astonishment his arm very readily, although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. "'Monsieur Valdemar,' I said, "'are you asleep?' He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about the lips, and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At its third repetition his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of the ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words, Yes, asleep now. Do not wake me. Let me die so. It was now the opinion, or rather the wish, of the physicians that M. Valdemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present apparently tranquil condition until death should supervene. And this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak to him once more, and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleep-waker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, 
resembling not so much parchment as white paper, and the circular hectic spots which hitherto had been strongly defined in the center of each cheek went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of the breath. The upper lip, at the same time, writhed itself away from the teeth which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of Monsieur Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I now feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, simply to proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in Monsieur Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses when a strong vibratory motion was observable in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. Monsieur Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to the question I had propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, Yes, no, I have been sleeping, and now, now, I am dead. No person present even affected to deny or attempt to suppress the unutterable shuddering horror which these few words thus uttered were so well calculated to convey. The nurses immediately left the chamber and could not be induced to return. My own impressions I would not pretend to render intelligible to the reader. We addressed ourselves again to an investigation of M. Valdemar's condition. It remained in all respects as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. The only real indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue whenever I addressed Monsieur Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleepwaker's state at this epoch. It was evident that, so far, death, or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us that to awaken M. Valdemar would be merely to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy, dissolution. From this period until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at M. Valdemar's house, accompanied now and then by medical and other friends. At this time the sleep-waker remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurse's attentions were continual. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening or attempting to awaken him, and it is the perhaps unfortunate result of this latter experiment which has given rise to so much discussion in private circles, to so much of what I cannot help thinking unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of delivering M. Valdemar from the mesmeric trance, 
I made use of the customary passes. These, for a time, were unsuccessful. The first indication of revival was afforded by a partial descent of the iris. It was observed as especially remarkable that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the eyelids of a pungent and highly offensive odor. Dr. F. then intimated a desire to have me put a question. I did so as follows. Monsieur Valdemar, can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return of the hectic circles on the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth, although the jaws and lips remained rigid as before. And at length, the same hideous voice which I have already described broke forth. For God's sake, quick, quick, put me to sleep, or quick, waken me, quick, I say to you that I am dead, dead, dead. I was thoroughly unnerved and for an instant remained undecided what to do. At first I made an attempt to recompose the patient, but failing in this through total abeyance of the will, I retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. In this attempt I soon saw that I should be successful, or at least I soon fancied that my success would be complete, and I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes amid ejaculations of dead, dead, absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, his whole frame at once shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed, before that whole company, there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putrescence. THE CASK OF AMONTILLADO The thousand insults of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult I vowed revenge. You, who know so well the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. 
In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, "'My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking to-day! But I have received a pipe of what passes for a Montiato, and I have my doubts.' "'How?' said he. <coughs> "'A Montiato? <laughs> a pipe? Impossible! And in the middle of the carnival?' "'I have my doubts,' I replied, "'and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. <coughs> "'Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado! And I must satisfy them. Amontillado! "'As you are engaged, I, I am on my way to Lucchese. "'If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. "'He will tell me—' <coughs> "'Lucchese cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. "'And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Well, "'Come, let us go.' "'Whither?' Well, "'To your vaults.' "'My dear friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. "'I perceive you have an engagement. "'Lucchese—' "'I have no engagement. Come.' "'My friend, no, it is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. <laughs> Let us go, nonetheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado, you, you have been imposed upon. And as for Lucchese, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado.' Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, putting on a mask of black silk, and drawing a roculaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honour of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. "'The pipe,' he said. "'It is farther on,' I said, but observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Nitre? he asked at length. Nitre, I said. How long have you had that cough? <coughs> my poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. "'It is nothing,' he said at last. "'Come,' I said with decision, "'we will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. 
Besides, there is Lucchese. <laughs> Enough, <laughs> he said. The cough is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. True, true, I replied. Uh, but you should use all proper caution. A draught of this Medoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mould. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose around us, and I to your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montressors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lacessit. No one provokes me with impunity. <laughs> Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes, and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the Medoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones, with casks and puncheons intermingling, into the inmost recesses of catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough. <coughs> it is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draught the Medoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. <coughs> you do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? <coughs> Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said. It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my roquelaire. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. <laughs> well, let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again arrived at a deep crypt in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. These sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use within itself, 
but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavoured to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said, herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucchese— <coughs> He is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and, finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astonished to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. "'Pass your hand,' I said, over the wall. "'You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp.' "'Once more, let me implore you to return.' "'No? Then I must positively leave you. "'But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power.' "'Imantiado!' ejaculated my friend, "'not yet recovered from his astonishment. "'True,' I replied. "'The Amontillado. "'As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones "'of which I have before spoken. "'Throwing them aside,' I soon uncovered a quantity of building-stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance to the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry, when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low, moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man— there was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth. And then I heard the furious vibration of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with the more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the masonwork, threw a few feeble lights upon the figure within. <coughs> a succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess— but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs, and felt satisfied. I approached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche 
a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke indeed. An excellent jest. We shall have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo <laughs> over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will they not be awaiting us at the palazzo, the Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said, let us be gone. For the love of God, Montressa. Yes, I said, for the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud. Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in reply only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick uh, on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century no mortal has disturbed them. In pace resquiescat. You've been listening to The Facts in the Case of Monsieur Valdemar and The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. And, as our mother would say at the end of a scary story, sweet dreams, everyone. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. If you're enjoying this series, please share the link with your friends. I'd be happy to add them to the free subscription list with notes sent out each week. Let me know what stories and authors you would like to hear. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfiggy, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at worcester.edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, all the best. Thank you.